Good afternoon. It is certainly a joy and a blessing to be here together today. It is a blessing to be able to come together as family, as a spiritual family, as a body of Christ, a flock of God's people, uh, to be able to spend this time together and worship to the Lord and supporting and encouraging one another. We often emphasize the importance of looking to God's word in all that we do. You've probably heard the phrase used before, we want to speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 11 says, If any man speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. Uh, that God ultimately might be the one who receives the glory, that he is the one that we recognize has all power, has all authority. And so everything that we do, everything we teach, everything we practice, um, we seek to emphasize going back to what God has directed us. And we did something a little bit different with our scripture reading today, seeing a common theme in a lot of Jesus' words throughout the book of John, in which he continually says, I do not act on my own initiative, my version says, or my own authority, some versions say. Um, and even the Spirit, when he comes, he's not going to act on his own initiative, but as he's received direction from the Father. Uh, and it's not because Jesus doesn't have all authority. Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority has been given him on the heaven on earth. But Jesus shows us an example in that. He shows us an example in his words continually, recognizing that he's not acting on his own initiative. And if Jesus Christ, the Son of God doesn't act on his own initiative, doesn't act on his authority, how much more should you and I not be acting on our own initiative, on our own authority? But what we hear and see from the Father, Jesus says, that's what we do. And so I, I want us to, to focus on that today. And, and one particular area, I want to apply those principles of going back to God's word uh, in what I, I recognize is a very difficult topic, and that's what is the church's job description? What is the work of the church, the work that God has entrusted to the local congregation. I um, got my associate's degree in accounting back in 2012, and, and I took a lot of business classes, uh, and I took a business ethics class, and in my old business ethics textbook, it talks about something called asset misappropriation. Uh, you all may or may not have heard of that phrase before, but what, what that's talking about on a basic level, we would define that as using an employer's resources in an unauthorized way for any purpose other than the work that you've been given to do. Uh, and we, we can see this regularly in the news about different people who have used company funds, who have used the, the funds of the school or the funds of the government for unauthorized purchases. In fact, just recently uh, in the Pittsburgh Public Schools, there was a story about uh, them giving out school credit cards and teachers not being monitored on how they're using those, some of them racking up, you know, up to $20,000 on these school credit cards of purchases from, from Giant Eagle and Sam's Club and, and who knows where else. And they were intended for a specific purpose, but it seems that they're being used for other purposes. And that's a very serious thing. Uh, in fact, many people can lose their jobs if they uh, are found to have committed asset misappropriation, to, to have misused company funds. But I want us to think about that concept in our service to the Lord. That God has given his church a specific role, a specific work to do. 
And we want to make sure that we're not guilty of asset misappropriation. That we aren't using what, what God intended for a specific mission and a specific purpose to, to go about other things that, that he didn't intend for us to be doing. If we're not careful, we can start using the collective resources of his body in unauthorized way. And so when we talk about the work of the church, we need to be very careful that we are respecting Jesus' authority. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23 says that God put uh, all things in subjection under Jesus' feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All things are under his authority. He is the head. And so what this body does, what work this body engages in, ultimately needs to go back to what work the head wants us to be doing. Colossians 3 verse 17, whatever we do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. And on a basic level, doing things in the name of the Lord means doing it for his sake, for his glory. But it also means by his authority. How can we know what is for his purposes unless we're going back to, to what he has said? So we need to be acting in every aspect, everything that we do, everything we teach, by the authority of our king, our head. So what about the work of the church? What about our job uh, as a local congregation? I want to first talk about what the church's job is not. When we look at the pattern of the New Testament, again, like Jesus said, we're, we're looking what has God told us, what has God shown us within his word. We don't want to act on our own initiative here. And so I want us to see some things that are absent from the pattern of the New Testament church, things that are not our job that would be acting on our own initiative. First of all, the church's job description is not entertainment and recreation. It is not the, the church's work to put together concerts and uh, field trips and softball teams and pancake breakfast and pizza parties uh, or live streaming the Super Bowl on Super Bowl Sunday coming up. All of those areas of recreation or entertainment within themselves, they may be wholesome and good and things that we can engage in, but I think we need to recognize that you don't see that in the New Testament church. If you open up in the book of Acts, we're not going to find Peter and, and, and Paul and others engaging in any of those type of activities as a work of the church. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10. Paul makes the statement, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Seeking to please the world and attract the world and seeking to please Christ, Paul here puts on two opposite ends of the spectrum. That if I'm still trying to please men, he says, I'm not a bondservant of Christ. We need to recognize that uh, those things that might attract in a lot more people are not what God would have us be doing. That our focus needs to be on him as our audience, not the world as our audience. I, I remember when I was in high school, we uh, visited a denominational service on a Thursday night. I won't go into detail uh, about the, the service itself, uh, but we, we went and visited this uh, Assembly of God service. And I remember distinctly after the service was over and they, they had kind of more of a, a stage oriented worship there. Uh, I, I went out into the foyer 
And the, the pastor's son, who is one of my schoolmates, came up to me and the first question he asked, he said, did you enjoy the service? That, that always stands out to me because I, I don't think I had ever been asked that question before. And certainly we should very much enjoy worshiping God. There's no question that if our hearts are in the right place, we are going to enjoy being together with our brethren. But I think if we're not careful, that question can be the driving influence of, of what we do when we're together. And that we start trying to make sure that everybody is enjoying themselves, and that becomes our focus, and that becomes what directs what we do as a church. I think we need to check ourselves on that, because pleasing God and pleasing men are often going to pull us in different directions. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. Here, Paul warns that there will come a time when there will be those who, wanting to have their ears tickled, will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. This is not a good thing. Here, seeking for those things that, that feed our own desires is going to draw us away from Christ. And so the Lord's church isn't here simply to make me feel good. The Lord's church is here to help me be good. If you want to turn your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you see here in the church in Corinth, uh, they had a variety of problems going on in their assembly, uh, in, in division, uh, in making the Lord's Supper into a self-indulgent feast. And so you see here in 1 Corinthians 11, as Paul begins to talk about the problems going on with them in the Lord's Supper, he says in verse 22, he's talked about how some of them are coming together and just indulging their own appetites and not taking this together in memorial of, of Christ. He says in verse 22, what? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? And this I will not praise you. It's not that eating and drinking within itself is a bad thing. It's not that it's not okay for them to, to get together and have a common meal, but that's not what they were supposed to be doing here. He says, do you not have houses to do that in? Later on in verse 34, he says, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Uh, and so simply feeding our own appetites, our own desires, the things that we might find enjoyable on a physical level, that is not what the folks of the church should be. And we need to be very careful that that doesn't become our focus because it's very easy as we seek to attract people into the church we seek to attract them through those things that the world finds entertaining, that the world finds in enjoyable. But that's not why we're here. That is not in our job description. Uh, that's not where our focus should be. When we come together, we're not the audience. God is the audience. And the primary question that we need to ask is not, did I enjoy the service? If my heart's where it should be, I will. But did God enjoy the service? Was it pleasing in his sight? But second of all, another thing that you don't see in the church's job description and the, the pattern of the New Testament is political 
activism? Is it the role of the church to endorse some specific candidate, to hold a campaign rally, to be an election site, or to tell people how to, to vote on Proposition X, Y, or Z? Now, I think what we do see, and, and with a few of these things that we'll talk about, that there is overlap between what the work of the church is and what's going on in our nation. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Certainly, we should seek to influence the moral climate of our nation. And as political issues overlap with moral issues, it's our responsibility to preach the truth on those things. But I think we need to recognize that as a local church, our area of influence is not intended to be the government, but is intended to be the hearts of men and women. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, we're told that our citizenship is in heaven. Our primary loyalty is to a heavenly nation, not to some earthly nation. We need to, to make sure that we're not making the church into some political institution, making Christianity uh, uh, an American thing. Jesus in John chapter 18, verse 36, told Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. When Jesus came to earth, did he come to revolutionize the political landscape of the Roman Empire? Did, did he come to you know, enact democracy or, or to release the Jews from Roman oppression? No, that wasn't his mission. That wasn't his goal. And so our conflict and our warfare is not of this world. Jesus says it's of a different realm. And so... While earthly kingdoms may rise and fall, and certainly there are moral aspects of that that we as the church should be preaching the truth on, our kingdom, the kingdom that should be our first priority, is a kingdom established in heaven, not here uh, among the, the nations of men. If you want to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, remember when Jesus was asked about paying taxes to Caesar. Matthew chapter 22, starting verse 17, they say, Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, here, this, this coin has the inscription, the, the image of Caesar on it. And he says, yeah, give that to, to Caesar. It's his. But render unto God the things that are God's. What, what has the image of God imprinted upon it? The hearts of men and women. Uh, we were created in God's image. And so while certainly we are going to preach the truth about things uh, that apply to morality uh, in our service to God that, that may have application to the laws of our land uh, and even the, the politicians that, that uh, arise. At the end of the day, our sphere of influence is not political activism, is not to endorse some, some candidate. Our sphere of influence is the hearts of men and women. We are to render unto God the things that are God's. 
which is ultimately everything, <laughs> ultimately our hearts, who we are. But thirdly, the primary job of the church, contrary to, to what many in society may think, uh, is not social services. The, the church is not intended simply to be some earthly charity or some hum humanitarian organization. Is it the church's job to build homeless shelters, uh, to fund hospitals or, or orphanages? Should we be opening up soup kitchens and holding blood drives? Now, I, I want to, to make sure that we specify here, all of these things are good and important things, are things, in fact, that Christians should be involved in. That is, we seek to do good, as we seek to show the compassion of Christ, these are things that Christians should be active in. But what I want us to, to consider as we look at the book of Acts is, is this what we see as the mission and the work of the collective church, of the local church? Do we see the church engaging in these type of things? Do we see Peter and Paul uh, putting together hospitals uh, or uh, homeless shelters? Well, I think on, on a very basic level, we need to recognize that the mission of Jesus Christ should be the mission of his body. Uh, and when Jesus came to earth, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, we're told that when Gabriel is speaking to Mary, he says, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Paul later on in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15 says it is a trustworthy statement deserving all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Why did Jesus come to earth? What is his mission? Was it to save the world from poverty? Was it to save the world from hunger? Now, ultimately, he came to save us from our sins. And we'll talk about how certainly in, within the work of the Lord's church, there are physical aspects of that. There are aspects in which we should be using our collective resources to take care of physical needs. I think we need to recognize that the mission of the Lord's church is not to solve these problems on a physical level within the world. That we're not simply a humanitarian organization. If Jesus' mission was spiritual, should not the mission of his body be spiritual? Uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 31 and 30, through 33. If you want to turn over there in the Sermon on the Mount, remember as Jesus here is, is speaking about worry, about anxiety, about our, our food and our clothing, he says in verse 31, and do not worry then saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Do you notice something there? Jesus makes a distinction between food and clothing and physical needs and his kingdom and his righteousness. He says, those are the things that the Gentiles seek after. There's something more important than food and clothing. You seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. Jesus' kingdom, as he told Pilate, is not of this world. And so our primary mission needs to be the salvation of souls. Matthew 4 and verse 4, Jesus says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Uh, the kingdom of God is not 
primarily about providing simply physical needs, but ultimately is about helping souls to be nourished by the bread of life, uh, bringing people to the Lord. Remember in John 6, when Jesus does show compassion, when he does feed the 5,000, when the people begin to follow him to get more food, what's his response? In John 6, verse 27, he says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Certainly, Jesus fed people. Jesus healed people of physical diseases. But Jesus' mission was not simply to help people's physical lives be better. It wasn't to, to help them simply live better in the here and now. Ultimately, he came to save people from their sins. That has many implications within our physical lives. There's no doubt about that. But that wasn't an end within itself, but a means towards an ultimate end of being able to be in God's presence for all eternity. And fourthly, the work of the church is not the work of the individual Christian. If we as individuals want to get together and have a Super Bowl party and you know, put it on a big screen and all watch it together, everybody's invited over to my house. Great, let's do that. If, if we as individuals want to seek to affect the moral climate of our nation by, by casting votes and supporting candidates uh, and even being active in, in campaigns, certainly that's a good thing that we can and maybe even should be doing. And there is no question that God would have us be serving people's physical needs, that we need to be going about doing good. Acts chapter 10, verse 38 Uh, Jesus is said to have went about doing good. His people should be going about doing good. There's no question about that. But I think we need to recognize that there is a distinction within the scriptures between what is good and wholesome and right for an individual to do and what the church should be doing. Turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Here, notice... Paul is giving instructions to Timothy about taking care of some physical needs. Certainly there is a a place within the church for taking care of physical needs. He talks about widows who were in need. He calls these individuals widows indeed. But notice what he says about them. Uh, And for time's sake, we'll just read a a few verses. I'd encourage you to read this entire chapter. But starting verse 3 and 4, he says, Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Later on, down in verse 8 and 9, he says, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man. He continues on about some qualifications for what type of individuals are to be taken care of by the church in this way. But notice how he concludes in verse 16. He says, if any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them and the church must not be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. Here's a distinction. Uh, And this is in one specific area, but I want us to see a principle that there is a work here that individual Christians are commanded by God to be doing. 
that they are to be taking care of their own households, of, of their own, you know, maybe widowed mother or widowed grandmother. And yet, here he says, if there is a believer who, who has somebody in their household, in their family who has this need, let them take care of it and let not the church be burdened. There is a distinction here in the responsibility even and the work that the individual Christian was supposed to be doing and what God wanted the church to be doing. And so there's a clear difference between the work or responsibility of an individual and the work and responsibility of the church. And I think we see this with each of these things that we've just talked about. All of these things can be wholesome, can be good, can be things that we as individuals should even be engaging in. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's part of the work of the church, our job description collectively. For, for instance, and I'm going I'm to use uh, a few silly examples here, not to be derisive or, or ridicule, uh, but just to show this principle on a very obvious level so that we can see it in some of the more difficult areas. Peter was a fisherman. Does that mean that the church should be in the fishing business? Well, no. We're to be fishers of men, right? Paul was a tent maker. Does that mean that the church should be in the tent making business? Certainly not. And even when we look at Jesus himself, uh, you know, Jesus took a nap in the bottom of a boat. D does that mean that we should institute a, a church nap time? And, and I, I say this to, on a ridiculous level, ju just to show a principle. That just because an individual Christian does something that, that is good, uh, something even on an individual level that we should or even commanded to be doing doesn't mean that that is the work of the church. And so, having established that, what is the work of the church? Because I, I don't want us to come away from our time together today saying, well, we're, we're pleasing to God because we're not doing this, and we're not doing that, and we're not doing the other. If, if that's all we ever think about when it comes to the work of the church, we miss the point entirely. What should we be doing? That's what we ultimately want to focus on, and that's why I started with the other, and we're going to end on this. What is the work of the church? And again, we want to speak where the Bible speaks. Only do those things that we see and hear from the Father. When we look at the New Testament, when we look at the pattern that God has left us, what do we see the church doing? What do we see is our purpose? On a most foundational level, we see that the church was to be engaged in collective worship. In Acts 20 and verse 7, we see that Paul, as he's in Troas, it says, On the first day of the week, they were gathered together in order to break bread. And specifically in that context, we're talking about the Lord's Supper, the communion. Uh, that they came together for the purpose of remembering Jesus' death. If you want to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Here we often read verse 23 and following to talk about the institution of the Lord's Supper, but I want you to notice the context of 1 Corinthians 11. If you go back up to 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 18, it says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, or literally in the church, in the assembly, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. Later on, as he's talking about how they've corrupted the Lord's Supper, he says in verse 20, Therefore, when you meet together... It is not to eat the Lord's Supper. They've made it into the self-indulgent feast. It, sh it should have been to partake of the Lord's Supper. 
So again, we see this happening in the context of the collective church. We can see very clearly this isn't just something that we're each doing in our own homes by ourselves. This is something that they did together in honoring the sacrifice of Christ through this memorial meal together. If you want to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we also see within the assembly that they engaged in worship through singing and praying. And again, this is the context of the collective church, not just individuals. In verse 12 of chapter 14, it says, So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. And verse 19, However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. So again, this is in the context of the collective, not just on an individual level. Well, what were they doing to edify uh, and, and to honor God in this assembly together? If you look in verse 14, 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 14, it says, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. What were they doing together in this context of the assembly? Well, we see they were singing and they were praying. Why? Because some elder came up and said, you know what? I, th I think it would be a good idea if we sing. No, because this is what God wanted them to be doing. This is God's direction, that they together engage in this type of worship. We could look in Acts chapter 12, uh, when Peter is in prison, it says that prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. And we see later on in that chapter, they are gathered together for a special meeting specifically to be praying uh, collectively on Peter's behalf. In Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16, we read about how we are to be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. And so here, this is a one another thing. We're doing this together, and part of that is directed towards the Lord. Uh, making melody in our heart to the Lord, singing with thankfulness in our hearts to the Lord. And so it's not that we do the things that we do together because, you know, Jason came up and said, you know, I think it would be a good idea if, if, if we sing. And I, I, I came in and said, well, I think we should eat some bread and we should drink some, some fruit of the vine. That would be a good idea. No. Brethren, we, we do these things because this is what God has shown us, because this is part of his pattern, because we are doing what we see and hear from the Father. And along with that worship and that honor to God, we also see that part of the intent is to build up and encourage and edify one another. Again, here in this context of 1 Corinthians 14, verse 12, as we already read, says, So also, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of of the church. Later on in verse 26 of this chapter, he says, what is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble? Each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. What was the purpose? He says edification. What, what does that mean? It's not a word we normally use. You might see the root uh, edifice, which is a word that means building. Literally, we're talking about building up. We talked about being living stones today in our Bible class, being stacked up together. Well, that's what we're doing together. We are building one another up spiritually in our service to God. 
Often when we think about the assembly, we think of the passage in Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25, when it says, And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so as we sing these songs, as we see in the New Testament, we're speaking to one another. We're teaching and admonishing one another. As we pray these prayers, we, we don't just pause and say, okay, everybody, say, say a prayer silently to yourself, uh, and then we'll start the services again. No, we, we pray together. Uh, and in fact, in 1 Corinthians 14, we see even the idea of them saying amen at the giving of thanks. This is something we do collectively not only so that we're communicating with the Lord, but so that we're encouraging and building up one another in that. We partake of the Lord's Supper to proclaim the Lord's death to one another. It's not just something that we do on an individual level. And we read the scriptures, we study, we preach uh, that we might be built up and encouraged spiritually. Not everything that makes me feel good, not everything that would be enjoyable to me falls under the biblical category of edification. And so we need to look to what God has directed us to do. Rock concerts aren't part of what the Bible has prescribed for our edification. Uh, Pizza parties aren't part of what the Bible has prescribed for our edification. And so we need to be looking at what God has directed us to do. And thirdly, we see that the church needs to be involved in seeking and saving the lost on a collective as well as an individual level. If you want to turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Notice this, Paul is writing this letter to the church in Philippi with their overseers and and deacons there in verse 1. He says in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Here that the church with their elders and deacons in Philippi is participating in the gospel. Well, how? How are they collectively participating in the gospel? You see at the end of this book in chapter four, Philippians four, verse 15 and 16, Here Paul writes, You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in matters of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. How is the church in Philippi participating in the gospel? I'm sure on an individual level, they were each reaching out and sharing the gospel with others. But here specifically, we see collectively They had collected funds and resources as a church to send to support Paul in the work of preaching the gospel. And we see that many places throughout the scriptures. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7 and 8. Paul, speaking to the church in Corinth, says, I preached the gospel of God to you without charge. He says, I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. Not just other individuals, but other churches collectively. Here they were using their collective resources to support Paul and the preaching of the gospel. And we see this even happening on a more local level back in 1 Timothy chapter 5. If you look in 1 Timothy chapter 5, later on in that passage, um, in verse 17 and 18, Paul says, "...the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor." 
especially those who work hard in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So here, uh, a pastor, an elder, a local shepherd, uh, on a local level, could be supported with wages, as he says there in verse 18. Uh, I think that's what he's talking about when he says double honor, in the preaching and teaching of the gospel. Clearly, this is something not just on an individual level, but collectively that we can uh, and should be engaging in. And so Jesus' mission of seeking and saving the lost is to be carried on by his body within the world. And lastly, and certainly not least, we see local churches can and should be uh, supporting the physical needs of the saints. You can see in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, that this is another way in which the local church used its collective resources. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1 through 3, Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections may be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And so here, the church, uh, not only the church in Corinth, but also the churches of Galatia, presumably many churches that Paul has been instructing, are using their collective resources as a church to support needy saints. Just like us in our personal families and households are to be taking care of our own, here we see the church as a family is to be taking care of its own. And we see that in many other passages. Romans 15, verse 26, Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 4, verse 34 and 35, all who are owners of land or houses were to, uh, would sell them and bring the proceeds and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would distribute to each as any had need. Again, that's in the context of the congregation of those who believed in verse 32. Uh, and so throughout, we see many examples of the church taking care of saints who are in need. That as we function as a body, as we function as a family, we show our loving compassion for one another in providing for each other's needs. And yet again, as we saw in 1 Timothy 5, there were some limits and some restrictions on that. And so as individuals... Certainly, there's no question that God would have us be doing good to all. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, we are to do good to all, especially to those who are the household of faith. Jesus went about doing good. And as individuals, we need to be taking care of our families. But as we see within the scriptures, the church, uh, every example that we are given is of them taking care of the needy saints among them. You, you don't ever see the church using its resources to attract people to the gospel through humanitarian efforts or humanitarian missions. I know we went through a lot of that quickly, and if you were expecting an exhaustive study, you certainly didn't get it. Maybe you're exhausted, uh, but it wasn't an exhaustive study. And I hope, at very least, this will help us consider these things. Are we doing the work that God has given us to do? If not, what changes do we need to make? If there's something that we're not doing that we need to be doing, let's do it. But at the end of the day, we want to do the things that we see and hear from the Father. We want to be founded upon the rock, which is Jesus Christ himself, upon his authority and all that we do and practice. And so let's not be guilty of asset misappropriation. 
Let's not bring in anything and everything that we think might be a good idea for the church to be doing. Let's let the owner of this building, and I'm not talking about this building, I'm talking about this building. Let's make, make sure that the master is the one who is directing all that we do in practice. Are you part of the body of Christ today? If you are, are you living in that way? Are you allowing him to direct your work from day to day? If you recognize in any way that there's a change that needs to be made in your life, um, that's why we're here, that we can help one another in our service to the Lord. And so if there is any sin that you need to confess before these brethren to ask for their prayers and support, if there's any way in which you need to, to dedicate or rededicate your life to the Lord, if we can help you bury the old man of sin and baptism and be raised to walk in newness of life, that's what we want to do. If you're subject to the Lord's invitation today, won't you please come forward as we stand and sing together.